This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagen, your host for this podcast and a professor of anthropology in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm very happy to welcome George Stiles to talk about his recent book, Contemplation, 400 Questions for the Inquisitive, which came out in September of 2021 on Amazon in Kindle and both paper and also paper formats. Uh, George, thank you very much for joining me on the STS channel. John, thanks so much for having me here. This is great. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I, I'm going to begin with a little bit of background on George. He holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Ottawa in Ontario, Canada, and currently he's living in Philadelphia. Uh, he's the author of three books, Contemplation, the one we're going to talk about, Chronic Calamity, and Lost Without Mischief, all rather interesting titles. Um, he's currently finishing up his fourth book, which is uh, due out this fall of 2021, and uh, he also keeps busy with songwriting, guitar and bass playing, martial arts, and, and a whole bunch of other things. So he's a, a busy guy. Um, on his Twitter feed, George describes himself as a writer of convention-defying books. And this is one of the things that really intrigues me about this book um, because it fits the description quite well. And so I want to begin uh, by, before really diving into the questions, by describing the book a little bit. Um, It's organized as a series of questions that range from the mundane, such as in general, what is the thing you would say uh, people talk about the most? to politically current questions such as does cancel culture really exist, to some intriguing thoughts uh, that certainly got to me like this one, what is an intellectual? Because I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, snob comes to mind, but I don't think that's the only answer. Um, the, questions, the questions are initially presented sequentially with numbers, and, and then George goes back to them and um, runs through them again with short commentaries after each question. And in some cases, the commentaries have further questions rather than answers to the questions raised. Um, one of the things I think that's really important about this book is that it's a product of our social media age. And it's quite innovative in the way that engages social media in, I think, a much more intellectually stimulating manner than typically what we see on social media. The questions in the book are questions that George has posted on Twitter as part of his daily tweeting. And I, I assume the the commentaries are a result of his thinking about the kinds of responses to the questions that he's gotten from those tweets. So in that way, it sort of engages the the social media 
scape in the writing of the book. And I think that makes it a particularly innovative um, contribution. And so I'd like to begin by asking, George, what motivated you to write this? And, and why did you choose this particular format as opposed to a more traditional structure? Well, the idea was, it goes back about 20 or so years, maybe even 24, 25 years ago. And at the time, I had been playing in a band, and you play till about 2 in the morning, you pack your stuff up, you go and have a bite to eat with everyone, then you get home about 4 in the morning. And so (laughs) I had gotten into this habit of thinking about things. And I, I used to think all night. And then it got into this thing about, well, why can't they cure AIDS? Why, why is cancer still a problem? Like, what exactly is the problem? And I never really could find an answer at the time. And I used to think, well, why? Why? All these people are saying it, and what is it? Is there, are they missing something, or is it really, you know, just that hard? And so I used to think about questions like this, and I would break away from it from time to time because I couldn't get an answer. And so it was like a list. And if you know the book, Contemplation, you'll see them listed there. And so I would go through problems like this all the time in my head. And so I think the origin that I could tell you about, it's most likely this. It's probably been in the making for a long time. So this is sort of where the idea for the book came from, because I thought, you know, what if there's other people like me? And I'm sure there is. That just sit there at night and can't fall asleep and want to go through all these things they wonder about because we all wonder. I think everyone does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And and you know, despite having started twenty or more years ago, it it it's also exceptionally well suited to the Twitter um, way of doing things. These are you know short questions that that pique our interest. And I, I think one of the things I find intriguing is to think about the way the book is also a product of that, of, of putting things out in public and then seeing how they respond to it. I, did you take, did you put a lot of use of, of what people responded to questions into the book? So it's, it's a, this is a very interesting question because it, there, it, there, there is a yes. There is like a Bayesian yes. <laughs> There's a little bit of a no, but not really. A lot of what people and the feedback they've given me is not just the direct feedback. Um, For example, the greatest example I can give you is that some people will answer one kind of question, but they won't answer another. And you begin after asking, I don't know how many I've asked now, it's been over a year, I've been asking 10 or more a day, (laughs) you start to see patterns emerge. Now, not enough that I could tell you I can stick some statistics to that and put it in a publication. But you know what I mean? As, as someone, you know, you know what data is. You've seen it. It's something that you see and you see patterns coming out of it. And so I started to go with those as well. Um, along the way, I realized, wow, there are some massively intelligent people here. And so I have a good collection of really smart people. And I thought, you know, sometimes I'm going to ask a question, not because I really wonder it, but I know that there are people who are also in the background, and they wonder, but they're afraid to ask. They don't want to come across as, you know, not being on the level. And I want to encourage those people and to, you know, maybe help them tap into their thought process by getting, you know, these massively intelligent people to kind of chip in on what they might say. 
and I've noticed over time these people come out of the woodwork a bit. You know, they kind of come out and they start, you know, trying to put in a little bit of an answer here and there. That, that is really interesting because as you described that, I realized I'm one of those people who responds to some of your questions, but not to other ones. And I think there's a pattern to it. Um, there, there are certain kinds of questions that you ask that I very quickly kind of uh, an idea pops into mind and I'll respond. And there are other ones that get asked where I go, oh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to engage that one. Um which I think is really an interesting observation that, you know, you can, in a sense, you could only get that through Twitter is, is that sense that how people engage one type of question is another. That's fascinating. It is. That's actually one of the more fascinating parts about it is because you get certain people that will be very confident in answering one type and then completely, you know, I hear crickets chirping from them, you know, on others. (laughs) And it's not always because, you know, it doesn't fit their agenda. This is what you also realize because we live in a time where this, agenda idea always gets thrown out there and it's not always due to that you know it's a lot people have a lot of reasons yeah i think that's true i think you know they they in some cases it's just a particular question piques their interest or um you know in, in some cases a particular question they look at it and they think i don't have a way to respond to that i i i can't i can't imagine a way to respond to that you know which is interesting too um and so I think that's one of the, the intriguing things about this whole you know, project is by putting so many questions out there, you're engaging lots of different kinds of people. And, and I assume that the, one of the goals is to, to with the book is to sort of expand that. Is that one of the things you were trying to accomplish? Yeah, I'm trying to get people to think. I'm trying to get them to tap in and also say it's OK to go past boundaries, too. You know, don't think within boundaries just because, you know, you may believe in X doesn't mean you can't question it. You don't have to give up your beliefs. You don't have to throw anything away. Just question it. Just try to think about it. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, from my perspective, that's one of the most important um, things to be doing today is to have the, the sort of intellectual or epistemic humility that allows us to ask lots of different questions and be open to questions that challenge our beliefs. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to drop our beliefs. Um, but we can we can think about these various ways to, you know, work through all of these questions that, you know, most, most people seem to have in one way or another. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about the book is it, is it has this kind of Wittgensteinian sort of feel to it in the fact that, um, you have numbered questions and the commentaries on those questions. And I was curious if that was intentional. And I was also curious if you could talk a bit about the organization of the book and the way you decided to put together the questions. You know, are there is a particular pattern to the questions, or how did you go about doing this? I was thinking about a table of people who are drinking, they're bored, but they're having fun. They may have a bowl of chips or whatever else, or maybe some chicken wings, whatever it is, and they pull out the book, and would this be fun for them? Because this could turn something like this into a really interesting night. And I thought, you know, you've got to have sort of a game aspect, something fun about it. You know, and so I put the questions listed first, because maybe people don't want to be polluted with what I'm going to twist them or make them out to be. And so I put the list there. Now, if someone wants guidance, you know, then there's the whole, you know, I bring in the quote-unquote insight, which sort of, goes down to what I mean by asking that question. And then there's the very tricky uh, 
citation, which is not always a good one. Because I put in, sometimes I put in a good one, sometimes I don't. There was one question I put in this absolutely insane paper. It was about mice taking LSD, doing religious poses or something. You know, yeah, it was ridiculous. And it's just to show people there are ridiculous things out there, but at the same time, it's up to you to research this if you really want to get into it. You know, and I don't know. Drinking around the table with wine, I don't know how far you want to get into anything, but... <laughs> well, I think, though, that also that word research is something that's been bantered around a lot with not much meaning these days. You know, oh, I go look up uh, what kind of, uh, I don't know, hoagies there are on the internet and I'm doing research. You know, it, it's just, but research involves engaging the um, the works of others. And that's one of the things you do quite interesting but by having these citations after each of the commentaries, you're engaging other people's work, but you're also as you say, pointing out that there are lots of different ways people engage these questions. And, and so, you know, and there's, there's a lot of stuff written out there that's pretty ridiculous, including as well as stuff that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Um, so did, so did Wittgenstein come to your mind at all when you're doing this? Is that just kind of coincidental? You know, until you mentioned it, I think, <laughs> I don't think I really thought about that because one of my favorite books is the Tractatus, but you know, um, it does come off, I guess you could say, almost like that, except he's kind of going to the point where he's building up to a, a final conclusion, where I'm, I'm not looking for one at all. And I just wanted this book to sort of leave the reader going, wow, I think I got something out of this. At least. My ultimate goal would be more so that we connect to the people in research, that, you know, the person that picks this up who is not a researcher is able to kind of connect and say, oh, this is what these guys do. And they don't realize that a lot of researchers, it's not conclusive. A lot of, you know, as you know yourself, there's a lot of debates still ongoing. And conclusive is like this elusive beast running away from you the more you dig in. That, that's so true. And, and I think... Um... I actually think that's one of the problems that we're facing with all of the arguments about masks and, and vaccines and everything is that when it comes out that we aren't 100% sure that the vaccine will work or the mask will work or whatever, or that we may have to make changes as we understand things, I think a lot of people have the mistaken assumption that science just answers questions, period. But science really doesn't answer much. It asks a lot of questions. And, you know, I've, I've felt for a long time, and, and others have talked about this, that, that I think a common mistake is that people that think that science is the, the searching for truth, but actually science is really the process of falsifying the things we think we know. That's really what I think science is about. And, and I think that's one of the great things about this is by just asking all these questions, you're pointing out that... Um, it's, it's about asking questions. And the answers are helpful, but, but in the end, they're going to just keep changing as we keep asking more questions. So I, I, really, I really like that aspect of the book, the lots of questions, lots of things to think about. Um, I think one thing that, you know, kind of coming back to this question of, of Twitter, we talked a little bit about, and, and I felt that there was almost like a, there's kind of a crowdsourced collaboration going on because of the way you went about the writing and the thinking of the book. And uh, I wonder if you could you know, expand a little bit on what you said before and, and, and 
How do you think Twitter or maybe other social media platforms might be used to do philosophy or maybe more broadly just to do intellectual work, to do, you know, academic kinds of things? And um, because that's how I see what you've done with contemplation. You've taken the social media platform and you've asked a question about, all right, how can we we do thinking? How can we do philosophy with this platform? And then you've put it into the, the framework of, of the book. And so could you, you know, how, how would you respond to that? Well, the idea is if we think about the old analogy of an engineer that designs a building, but then goes down and talks to all the workers. This is sort of the idea is that you take a question or an idea or a train of thought, because a lot of the times I'm actually on these trains of thoughts myself. And when you put it out there on the platform, it will very much surprise you the, the, the person that will just come up with something brilliant that knocks you right off your track. And that, I think, for philosophers is a must. Is you need to put it out there because you never know who is going to surprise you. And it always surprises me who surprises me. <laughs> if that makes sense. The, the people are very brilliant. And I think if you give people a chance, this is what happens. And so you go, oh, okay, so maybe this question needs this, or it needs some work, or, you know, needs to be reformulated. And so this is what you get from Twitter and from people, is it is the ultimate peer review. From people that don't have pressure, they, they, they don't have skin in the game, but, you know, sometimes that's good too, because they can just say anything. And in life, if you think about it statistically, you know, you play enough, you know, the lottery, you may not win, but you may win. And this is what happens a lot on Twitter. Yeah, I, I think um, in on your, your Twitter page, I, I think you point out something like um, you... You did your PhD in in biochemistry, and and but you're you're not in the academic world now. You're working in in uh, industry, correct? No, I, well, I have a I have a side gig here that I'm doing. So it's I guess it's academic. I mean, really, but I mean, I'm I'm basically a hired hand. So I'm doing a lot of work on the computer. So I have time to run over to Twitter as I'm running simulations. So I was, you know, one of the things I was thinking is that the the way Twitter works and the way you've accessed it and used it, it, it sort of challenges the ivory tower feel of, of doing intellectual work. And, and, you know, was that a goal that you had was to sort of undermine that? I certainly want to undermine that. I think there's way, way too much of, of academia. That's, that's people talking to each other about little tiny things and not engaging a very intelligent public that can come out and raise really fascinating questions that in fact, I think would generate better thinking, better research. And so, you know, was that kind of what you were going for with this? 100%. Or is it based? 100%, John, 100%. Because that's the problem. Like you said, um, I was reading something about Richard Feynman. There's, uh, I live kind of close to the uh, Center of Advanced Studies, where I think Oppenheimer and Einstein were over in Princeton. And I was thinking, wow, that's pretty cool, you know, a place where these guys just sat around and thought. And then I read about Richard Feynman's comment on it. And Feynman said, yeah, but it's a place in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) There's no experimentalists to talk to. And, you know, there you go. There's Feynman nailing it right on the head. Is You know what I mean? You can't just, no man is an island, and you don't want to be. 
you know, when you have the world's greatest problems, it makes sense to get everyone in on it, doesn't it? I, I agree. I, I think it, 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 for me, it's actually, this points to something that's always bothered me in the academic world is on the one hand, I'm, I'm a real fan of, you know, learning for learning's sake and knowledge for knowledge's sake. But we have so many problems in our world that need the attention of, of people thinking deeply that I think just sitting around in sort of smoke-filled rooms in the back and having deep conversations isn't enough. We, we need to be thinking about how to apply intellectual work to the world and how to bring people into that work. And that's one of the things you, you do wonderfully with this is you bring people into the conversation. That's what I think we should be doing. I think all academics. If I was ever one, I think this, I, I would still do the same thing. I would actually, I think, sometimes even put out preliminary data if I could, seeing it's public if I'm an, I'm an academic. Sorry. And, you know, see what people think, because you'd be surprised about, you know, again, a bell curve, you think about a Gaussian distribution, the tails, what's in the tails, right? And a lot of the magic lies there. And so this is what it captures. And the public is, you know, they just may not be informed. They are by no means unintelligent, you know. People all have an intelligence to them. And there's a lot of creativity out there yeah, that can be brought to these kinds of questions that, uh, you know, my own, uh, I guess in some of my more cynical moments, I find that the academic world has a way of stifling creativity because so much of what happens is formulaic. You, you know, both. it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you look at the way academic papers are written and, you know, once you figure out the formula, they're very easy to write. It doesn't take a, a whole lot of effort to write one because they're all kind of done the same way. Each field has its own formula, but that's what they do. And, and, that isn't to say that it's bad, but there's it's hard to step out of that and really really go in creative ways. And by pulling in a much broader audience, you have this opportunity to, to get these really interesting, wow, I never would have thought of it that way kind of moments. Because somebody who isn't engaged in that formulaic way of doing things just looked at it in a different way. No, it's totally true. And that's the problem. You got to break out of this, you know? I mean, I guess it goes along with the fact that, you know, university is, what, a thousand years old or more, I think it's an institutive sort of thing. But, you know, this uh, sort of elitism is, you know, it's it's not good for them either. It works against them. So, Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think the university has many issues. I think that the elitism is an issue. I also think um, the model, you know, it's basically a 19th century model. <laughs> and, you know, that's to me, again, one of the things about this book that really kind of got me going is that this is a 21st century model for thinking about how to do intellectual work. But most of what is happening in the academic world is really a 19th century model. The, the writing, of course, is contemporized, but the structure of the university, the way things are written, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think that, yeah, we need to engage people, you know, and everyone, professors, everyone. I mean, and I was glad to see you show up, you know, because that's what I really wanted was to have some academics kind of come in and intermingle and just see what's going on and maybe start their own. You know, I'm hoping that other people are going to keep this question train and this discussion sparking going. Um, I hope it doesn't stop because, you know, this is a great way to really start to figure out problems. 
Well, and, and I think your, your Twitter feed suggests that um, you're having success. I, I, I can't remember. I looked at one point how many followers you have, but you have a lot of followers. Um, yeah. It's like 15,000 or something, 20,000. 28, 28K, I think it was. That's a lot of people. And what that means is you're touching a lot of lives and getting people to think about things, you know, and, and that's... Uh, you know, I've written a lot of academic books. I kind of doubt that 28.8 thousand people have read any <laughs> of the things that I've ever written. Um, and, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, the, the academic publishing process also tends to be focused only on writing for other academics and then pricing <laughs> things so nobody can ever buy the book and, and those problems. But true. So as an anthropologist, I was really intrigued by... There are lots of questions in the book I was intrigued by, but there was one that really caught my attention. Number 380, you ask, do people need ideology? I thought that was an interesting way to think about this. Most of the time, it's what ideology do people have? But you turn this around and ask, is it something that that we need? Is it a human need? And your insight suggests that, you know, those in power demand it, um, but you, you don't you don't actually quite answer the question on 380. And so I want you to answer the question. I'd be curious to know what you think the answer to this might be. Well, if I had to give you an answer, which I don't think is the answer, just as a disclaimer. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. The thing is, I think we think we need ideology more than we actually do need ideology. You see, I think that there is more of a advertising campaign for ideology, and I think it's very strong because it comes at us in all sorts of directions. But do we really need it? You know, um, I would say in today's world, if we took all the ideology, if we could quantify that, I would say we probably are more than drowning in it. I don't think we need this much. Why do I need to have a belief system? You know, for example, I mean, my, myself, I didn't find any answers in belief. I found that every time I did believe in something, there was always an exception, making a fool of me. And I couldn't get away from it, no matter what. I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried to rescue, and it just fell through the floor every time. So I just decided to say, well, maybe the way to do this is to look at the probabilities of things. You know, like gravity, I think, is pretty much almost 100%. You know, the sun rising every day, almost 100%. Other things, I don't know. That's a, that's a, it's a mysterious thing because you don't know. Just because you may not have any, you know, you may lack evidence, doesn't mean something doesn't exist. But at the same time, right, it's also there's the human factor you have to put into things. Right? How much are humans trying to tell me I need something? And in, is that the case? Yeah, I, <laughs> I I think you 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 hit on something that's been really important to me in my recent thinking and writing is the one of the things about probability is there's this uncertainty involved with it. Ideology gives people certainty, and often really bad certainty, but it still <laughs> gives them. It's an easy way to kind of cope with things because you have a certain answer to things. Except that's not the way the world is. There's uncertainty everywhere we turn. And, and I find that 
I actually think that's one of the things that's really causing this sort of debilitated environment that we live in politically and socially is that people right now are very unwilling to accept the notion of, of uncertainty. Instead, they want to lock into an ideology. And in that sense, because I, I, I would maybe disagree with you a little bit and say, maybe we need it for some reason, but maybe we'd be better off if we could get past that need in some way, because we're we keep locking ourselves into these rather simplistic ways of looking at things that don't reflect the way the world actually is. Um, That's a, see, this is the other end of it, right? And I don't know enough to debate you on this. I literally will have to go and study this and come back to you. <laughs> that sounds good. We'll have another conversation. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, think, I don't have an yeah. answer for that immediately, other than yeah. to say that I'm also worried more so about one thing, and it's the one thing most people don't look at is I am a creature. I am a, you know, I am homo sapiens. I am a, you know, a particular genus and species. And I'm worried, as this particular homo sapiens is worried here, what innate traits do I have, though, that draw me to have to have certainty? Evolutionarily, it's a very good thing. But it can easily get thrown around and misplaced and put on the places where it may not be applicable or, say, beneficial. And so this is another worry I have. So this is all where this ties into with it. But again, I don't have any definitive answer, really. But that's the best answer. The best answer, in my view, is to be able to step back and say, I don't have the answer to this. I got a few ideas about it. Yeah. Um, and I want to keep thinking about it. Yeah. And Maybe there isn't an answer to this. You know, maybe it's just one of these things we have to keep thinking about. But I think that's actually, you know, part of the problem with the, these ideological frames that we drop into because the answer's there, we're done. We don't have to think anymore. And so, um, again, that's to me one of the things about your book that it, it's a book that's all about stimulating thinking without giving a bunch of answers to where the thinking goes. And and to me, that's uh, that that's what education should be about. It's not about giving people answers. It's about getting them to think. And, you know, that the book does this really, really well. Um, so could you pick out a couple of questions that you think are the most important ones in the book and, and read these for our audience and maybe elaborate a bit on your ideas about those questions? Okay. Um, now I'm, again, <laughs> I can't give any definitive answers because <clears throat> again, I don't really have them, but one of the ones I like was, um, it's a question 11, and it goes, if time after time people keep falling for the same tricks, what, in your opinion, does that say about H. sapiens, us? Why do we not learn from history? We are smart enough. Ask any individual what the problem is. They will tell you historically it was X that causes this. Yet, Time and time again, we keep doing this. So this is one of the ones that I think is a big kind of problem because I always relate it to squirrel fatalities on the road. I see, <laughs> yeah, I see squirrels, you know, and you yep. see them, and time after time they're getting hit. So in short, what I thought the answer to this is, is that there is a limit to our species or any species. And when we see ourselves in our society sort of keep making these mistakes, and we all know it's not good. You know, it was 70 years ago we seen 
you know, fascism and what that did, right? And yet, you know, you see a resurgence trying to peep up in certain governments around the world. And you're thinking, guys, have you not learned? Well, no, because our species has a limit. And it may be a cognitive or mental limit here that I'm talking about. But this was one of the things I was thinking about. And I thought, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just we have a limit. Um, so that's number 11 for me. That was my take on it, my, my quick take. That's a really, it's a really interesting observation. And, and you know, it, it would help to get us thinking about, you know, why when we do Vietnam, do we then go do Afghanistan right. and, and just basically do the same dumb thing we did before, trying to, you know, nation build in a society that isn't going to respond to our way of nation building. And, and yet we just... You know, it's a very important question. Why do we keep making those same mistakes? And it would be, do you think it would be disappointing if it turns out we really have a limit and we just can't get past that? No, I think that would be the day we should all celebrate because now we know where to draw the line. We know there's a line and we know where to work from. And that's where the human is powerful, is that once we identify where, you know, something is, we can do science with it. We can do things because we have something to measure against. Yeah, we can. We if we when we know what the parameters are, we can then begin to figure out how to push beyond those parameters by asking the right questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's just a great observation. Um, th- there is just a huge amount to think about in this book, and and um, I think one of the wonderful things about this is that it's really important for authors to experiment with new structures and approaches to presenting ideas and. I'm wondering, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to add? Well, um, I think that one of the things I, we could add is another question. And it's uh, 177, and it's, why do humans worship? I mean, why do we worship? Where did that come from? And we all do it, you know? Um, you get more than often, even if you're you know, thinking about it, you'll catch yourself doing it, trying not to do it. <laughs> Why do we do this? And, you know, I tied it in, the best one I could tie it into is, again, this sort of way we've been modeled. And if you take an animal, again, you know, that we're related to, a mother of any animal will defend its child, and the child runs to its mother. This is a heavy instinct in us. Could it be that it or some fraction of it is involved in worship. I don't know. But at the same time, could that notion, this this innate programming in us, which obviously helps us survive immensely. I mean, without a mother and the protection of parents growing up as a youngster, we're toast in this world. (laughs) So, you know, there has to be a draw to a parent. And then you think about it, are not the gods of all of our creation sort of in this fashion, except on a different scale? I don't know. This is a question for you more so, I think, than me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a it's a really interesting thought, and and you know, in, in a sense, you might ask if if do you know powers, spirits, deities, whatever they are, do they function as sort of surrogate parents? And and you know, we 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 need to have that sense of comfort that comes with them that comes and people talk about worship and comfort together and and where is parents a bad word to use here see i think that one that's where a lot of people will get tripped up and say well obviously i don't need parents but 
you know what I mean? If there's another word for parent, yeah, is that it? Authority figure, nurturer. There, there yeah. may be a bunch of different ways to think about that. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thought, and and you know, it would, it would. I think the thing that's intriguing about this is that, as you point out, since it's so widespread, there there seems like there ought to be some real biological basis for it. It has to be something that was advantageous to us from an evolutionary perspective that we continue to carry with us that must still be, I suppose, an advantageous in some way. And, and, um, but the question is, you know, what, what exactly is that advantage and why is that, you know, happened? So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so we're going to have to get people to read your book and they're going to have to answer that question. Um, and maybe other questions. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so what's up next? What are, you say, you have another book coming out. Can you tell us about what you're working on these days and what your plans are? Well, the other book is finished. I haven't really put it out there. Um, it has nothing to do with, unfortunately, contemplation. I would have to see if contemplation actually gets anywhere. You know, um, At the moment, I don't know. I could write a sequel to it or more, 400 more questions. I mean, there's always that possibility. So I guess you're contemplating that, that right correct. now. Sorry. <laughs> and no definitive answers yet. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, the book was, the idea was put on to me by, I'll, I'll say they should, they will be, um, how will they, they will remain anonymous. But the idea was always pushed at me. Oh, you should write these down. You should write these down. You should write these down. Put it in a book. Put it in a book. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I enjoyed reading the answers. Right? You, you, you ask one question, and I just spend all the time just going through the answers. It's just great. And I thought, maybe that's all I need to get out of this and just have people talk. But then it was put to me, write it in a book, and I said, okay. And so it actually is doing okay. It's not bad, but I don't know. I don't know really how to get it out there. I don't really, I'm not a marketing specialist myself. <laughs> that's a problem with writing is that many of us who write don't, understand or even really want to deal with the marketing side that much no. it's, it's not interesting yeah so what what's the book you you have coming out it completes my other two books it's a series um and it just it's the last one it's the end of the, the whole story and okay so, so this is a fiction book is, well yeah it's a fiction book absolutely i'll say it that way once you read them you'll see why i'm saying it that way <laughs> but yeah it's it's the last one, and it's, uh, it's pretty much ready to go. Um, but I don't know what to do because um, I don't want to obscure my other works. And I also had a short story that was out in the collection, and I'm thinking, oh, I need to advertise these things. I need to get them out there. <laughs> yeah, and actually that's something I've noticed is when you have a couple of things out that are really aimed at a, a general audience, it's a lot more work to get them both advertised or all three of them advertised or whatever yeah. and, and try to do that because it takes a lot of time. You know? does, so, yeah. yeah. But the other problem is I don't want to bother you guys. You know, there's a point where I, I say, no, I don't want to interrupt what I've got going. I like this. You know, I'm thinking we're talking. We're all talking. And I like that because what the greatest problem is right now with this division and politics, we're not talking, you know, we're yelling, we're telling each other to, you know, go where to go and all this stuff. And it's great, you know, sure. But the problem is we're not talking and we need unity at the level of discussion. If anything, I, I think that's a profound observation. I think it is very much where we're at right now. It's 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 a great show with everyone yelling at each other, but this isn't a show we're in. It's it's reality, and we need to 
have conversations where we can really think about what, what we want to do, what kind of world we want to live in, what kind of country we want to live in. And I think that's a, um, that's where we need to be at. And I think that's what your, what's what your work is really doing. It's trying to get that, that dialogue, that discourse going. And, and I appreciate that. Yeah, that's the thing. And even, you know, you'll go on there and I block people. And the reason I'm blocking isn't because I'm personally, I don't, I don't care what name you call me. I, I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident. Person. That's not what's going to bother me. What's bothering me is that you are trying not to communicate. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, I, you don't like me. Yes, you don't think I'm morally whatever. That's great. But my problem is you're not helping the discussion. And so even, you know, these people that I block, I just want to hope that I can get across to them. I won't keep you blocked because I see that some of them make accounts, fake on other accounts. <laughs> come mm-hmm. back on. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it's fine. And I don't block them. I, I, I know who they are from their writing because I've, I've read them before. <laughs> and I don't try to block them. I just want them to discuss or just open up and give out their ideas to other people and so they can, you know, do what we do in research, right? You know, revise and... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And rethink and, yeah. and, and, and have a, have a conversation that again, sort of pushes our boundaries a little bit and makes us look at the world in a new way. And yeah, that's, um, well, that, that's what education is supposed to be about. And I think that's what both your book and the Twitter feed do is they provide a, a different way to approach education. That I think is very appropriate for the world we live in right now. We, we need a lot more of these kinds of creative ideas about how to educate, how to think. Well, you know, the day I think that you would, I could say that this has been a successful thing is the day I start to see academics doing this. You know, have a feed that's opening up to people and also just anyone. You don't have to be just a you know, university professor to be a thinker. Anyone can do this. And it would just be awesome to see if we could get people doing this. And we all engage. I try to engage other people's questions, add in a bit, and, you know, if we all just chip in, I think we can solve a lot of problems. Yeah, and if maybe we, we do exactly what you're doing is focus on the questions instead of the answers, we can actually get a conversation going. Yeah. Um, too much of social media is people just presenting the answer and their answer, of course. <laughs> um and, and and not really thinking about what the questions actually are. So Exactly. Yeah. Well, George, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel for the New Books Network. Um, as we've discussed, I think contemplation is just a really innovative foray into philosophical writing. And I think it engages audiences in a way that's very different from traditional publishing um, because of this linkage to Twitter that's there. And uh, I just really want to encourage readers to take a look at this book and, and, and go on and, and look at the on Amazon and take a look at it and spend some time contemplating with it, thinking about these questions, because um, there's an awful lot to think about there. So again, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me.